Let us pray. Gracious God, you send your Holy Spirit to infuse the life of your church. We thank you for this new study on the Acts of the Apostles. And as we come together to study your word, we pray that you would give us revelation about what it means to be your church in our day and time. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Okay, well, welcome everybody to this Acts of the Apostles Zoom Bible study. And for those of you who are new to a Bible study that I lead via Zoom, it's a mixture of didactic teaching where I'm sharing my screen so you can see my notes, and then I take the notes down once we have some conversation. And I just want to start, I'm not going to offer a really long intro to the book of Acts. This is not a seminary class, but I do think it's useful in order just to kind of give you the basics about the text we're studying. And so some things you might not know. First, Acts is part two in a two-volume work. Luke and Acts was composed as one literary piece, and although it's broken up by the Gospel of John and the New Testament canon, um, it was all written to be read as one piece. Both the author and the audience are the same, and it composes over 25% of the New Testament, and so to be familiar with this literature is essential if we're going to be biblically literate. And Luke tells us why he is writing at the very beginning of his gospel. Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, he says, Since many have undertaken to set down an orderly account of the events that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed on to us by those who, from the very beginning, were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, I too decided, after investigating everything carefully from the very first, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. And so a few things right off the bat. First, Luke tells us that this is not a new project, that many have undertaken to set down an orderly account. We know that Luke had access to the gospel of Mark, but not Matthew. And so Luke is aware of many people who have tried to write a gospel. Some of those we probably don't have. He says, many have undertaken to write down the events of Jesus's life, but I too have investigated everything, and so I'm going to write this for you, most excellent Theophilus. Now, who was Theophilus? The name means uh, friend of God. Uh, and so Theophilus could be a symbol for you and I and for all those who read um, that we're invited to see ourselves as the friend of God, or it could actually be a person, perhaps a Roman official who is suspicious of Christianity. We'll get into that in a little bit. Or maybe it's the patron of the work, the person who commissioned Luke to sit down and to write this narrative. And so we know that this is addressed to someone called Theophilus, whether that be a symbolic group of people or an individual. As far as the author uh, who wrote the Gospel of Luke and Acts, well, Luke. Uh, but why do we say Luke? Um, does it say that anywhere in the text? And of course, the answer is no. Um, and so traditionally speaking, why was the gospel of Luke and Acts credited to Luke? Well, really interesting. We'll get into this later in our study. But at the very end of the Acts of the Apostles, um, there are the narratives, the ship narratives, where Paul is traveling with an unnamed companion. It it takes up about four or five chapters at the end of the Acts of the Apostles. And sometimes Paul uses uh, 
sometimes it's written in the third person of Paul did this. Paul went to Croatia, well, not Croatia, but, but Paul sailed here. This happened to Paul. But sometimes um, it says we, we did this. We went to this island. This happened to us. And so it sounds like a first person narrative, someone who was a traveling companion of Paul. And so right off the bat, um, people started asking, well, who did Luke, I mean, who did Paul hang out with? If, if this person was traveling with Paul, um, who were Paul's companions? And basically, um, from Colossians 4.14, Paul writes, Luke, the beloved physician, and Demas greet you. And one thing that was noticed in reading Luke and Acts is that the author has a lot of medical expertise, a lot of expertise about illness and medical knowledge about how healing happens. And so uh, somehow people put some things together that in Colossians, Luke travels with a physician and in Acts, uh, someone seems to know a lot about medicine. So a lot of people made some guesses and said the author was Luke. Now, other scholars say, no, this wasn't written by a doctor. This was written by a technical uh, writer and a literary scholar. And so um, we don't know who actually wrote this, but there's a good hypothesis that says it was a traveling companion of Paul. And we believe this was written between the year 80 and 90 AD. Now, the question is, what's the motive? Why is this being written? You know, if many have undertaken to write an orderly account of Jesus's death and resurrection and life, and now the birth of the church, why a different account? And this is where things get interesting. Luke wants to write this story with a certain agenda. He wants somebody, Roman officials most likely, to see the gospel not as a new religion, but as the continuation of the story of Israel. Why? Because the Romans did not like or tolerate new religions. The Romans tolerated Judaism because it was ancient. The Jews had been around forever, and you know the Romans wanted peace, and they weren't going to go messing with an ancient religion. But if a new religion popped up, something counter to those who worship the pagan gods, the Romans said, no, 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 no. You know, the Jews, you're grandfathered in, but new religions, we don't like you. You're going to be persecuted. And so part of what Luke has to articulate, the case he has to make, is that this is not a new movement, but rather the unfolding of an ancient movement, and that God is fulfilling God's promise to Israel in and through the church. And that's going to be a hard case to make if you're a Roman official. Um, you'll notice a few other things. So that's why he's writing this for the Romans. But what about the Christians? You know, what kind of conversations are they having? And you're going to notice a lot of words in Acts like sure and certain. You know, um, Luke is not someone who wants you to embrace the ambiguity of faith and to say it's all a mystery. No, he wants you to be certain. And why is that? Well, two things. Um, number one is that the church is now undergoing persecution. We see this with the stoning of Stephen uh, a few chapters into uh, the book of Acts. And Luke wants the people in the church to know that the gospel they risk their life for is real. Uh, and so he wants them to be sure and certain. He'll talk about many convincing proofs. 
The other uh, internal issue is the question, can God be trusted? Is God trustworthy? Now, why is that a question they're asking? Because Gentiles are now dominating the church. You and I easily forget how scandalous it is that this Jewish movement that started with God calling Abraham and saying, through you and your descendants, I'll bless the world, um, that now uh, what's happening to all of the Jewish people? Why are these uncircumcised Gentiles making up the people of God? And uh, people are wondering, can God be trusted to keep God's promise? Because the promise was to Israel. And part of what Luke has to say is that actually, by grafting in the Gentiles, this is the way that God is keeping his covenant to Abraham. That is very, very important for Luke. And the way that he will then portray the church moving forward is as a new and restored Israel. And that's just going to be central to understanding Luke's ecclesiology or how he understands the church. Um, yeah, so the question is um, uh, that Mary's asking is, uh, if I'm hearing you correct, is Luke saying anything other than you and I currently believe? Pretty much, yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. So I would say no. I mean, like what, what Luke is saying uh, is fully in line with Christian teaching, theology, and belief that, um, by, that, that Jesus was the Messiah of Israel who was always intending to graft in the entire world and welcome in the Gentiles. It gets a little tricky in terms of how we preach about that and talk about that in today's political climate, you know, with uh, 2,000 years of anti-Semitic behavior behind us of how we talk about the church as a restored Israel, as the new Israel. Um, so as uh, to be very careful, a lot of theologians want to walk a line to make sure that in no way do we seek to uh, discard uh, uh, current Judaism and, and somehow maintain that God is still with them and keeping God's covenant to them. Uh, but yeah, I mean, long story short is that Jesus is the Messiah. Uh, and, and we believe that this is how to be Christian is to believe this is how um, God keeps God's covenant. And that the promise was never for one group of people, but that that one group of people was chosen to bless the entire world. So, um, but your question, though, Mary, reveals, you know, how comfortable we are with this 2,000 years later. And uh, in Luke's day, um, even though it's all over the Old Testament, if you look for it, um, that the promise was always to bless the entire world, um, this still was felt as being very, very radical and very, very scandalous. Yeah. Rhoda? Why, why were they not kept together, the two books? Why were they separated? Great question. So the question is why, if it was written as one literary unit, why are they broken up by the Gospel of John? Um, and it's mainly just to keep the Gospels together. So the question is why didn't John come third and Luke come fourth? Uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the synoptic Gospels. The word synoptic comes from a word that means one eye. 
basically the idea being that Matthew, Mark, and Luke are written from a very common perspective using very similar sources. And when you compare that with the Gospel of John, uh, it comes from a much different place. You know, John had some of those Gospels, but he was not interested in writing a Gospel like Matthew, Mark, and Luke. His is very, very different. And so because John's Gospel is so different, uh, kind of really laying out with clarity this cosmic Christ, the incarnate Word who became flesh, and also because John was written after Luke, um, whoever put the New Testament canon together uh, saw fit to, to break them up. And, uh, and you know how we are with tradition. Once something's set, we don't change it. <laughs> Gail. I should know this, but is there any mention of the Holy Spirit? There's not in, in Luke. We don't have the Ascension. Is it just in Acts? No, the Ascension is recorded twice. This is a very okay. interesting thing. So okay. we're about to look at 1 through 11, but not only is the resurrection uh, in Luke, right, which is the resurrections in all four Gospels, but right. in, in Luke, you actually have the Ascension, uh, Jesus being taken up into heaven. Okay. And it's interested that uh, this Ascension was so important that Luke included it twice. He tells okay. of Jesus' Ascension to the right hand of God. You know, I used to think that, well, maybe somebody went off with <clears throat> Luke and mis or he misplaced his papers. He left it somewhere and he's on yeah. the road, started all over. Yeah. Okay. Other questions about, before we dive into the text, just about kind of this text we're studying and some of the issues in the background. Well, um, choose this, um, choose this particular chapter for us to be, or the book for us to be reading. I mean, what was, what was leading you there? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, so why did I choose Acts of the Apostles? Uh, I'm going to be perfectly honest. At some point, I'm going to want to dive into an Old Testament book with this group, but for two reasons, that is a lot harder. One is I'm going to have to do a lot more work ahead of time um, to really dive into the work. I mean, like I know the Old Testament really well, but I want to be fluent whenever I lead a Bible study just to know it like the back of my hand, and so it requires more work on my part. Uh, and it requires more work on your part. And I just, I just wasn't, maybe next we'll go into an Old Testament book. Um, and Acts, um, the reason I wanted to do that was because I knew it pretty well, but um, it had been a long time since I personally had studied it. And so uh, I just kind of asked the question, what would I be passionate to study? And, uh, and cause my whole theory of ministry is that if I'm passionate, maybe you can catch some of my passion, but if I'm not passionate, I can't fake it. So I think that's just kind of where my own heart went. And so it felt like a pretty good thing to teach. Yeah. Makes sense. Thanks. Acts is a long book and I've studied it with different groups through the decades several times. But every time I read it, I find something new or have a new aha or say, oh, I didn't remember that story. So, you know, it's got so much in it that I don't think you can study it too much. That's, that's true. And there's, there is a lot of good stuff in there. A lot of good stuff. Okay, so hold some of your questions. And I'm going to go ahead and we're going to dive into the text 
itself. And uh, I'm going to share my screen here. And it's, it's, uh, that's my, my email here. I'm going to not do that. That's my goodness. I'm just sharing all kinds of stuff here. Okay. Stop share, share screen. I'm going to go to that. That's what I want to share. Okay. Um, let me read this really quick for us. In the first book, Theophilus, the first book being the gospel, I wrote about all Jesus did and taught from the beginning until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions to the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself alive to them by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over the course of 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. While staying with them, he ordered them, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait here for the promise of the Father. This, he said, is what you have heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, is this the time when you will restore the kingdom to Israel? He replied, it is not for you to know the times or periods that the Father is set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. When he had said this, as they were watching, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. While he was going and they were gazing up towards heaven, suddenly two men in white robes stood by them. They said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up towards heaven? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So a few quick notes here. Uh, the first is that uh, this is clearly again addressed to Theophilus, meaning friend of God. And um, Luke tells us, you know, I wrote this first book about all that Jesus did. Um, and he's really kind of summarizing all of that. I think uh, a few things to note. One is that, um, that you are actually invited to be Theophilus, right? So Theophilus is not just a historical figure, although he is certainly that, but um, Luke is writing this to you, that you are to see yourself as the friend of God. And uh, by reading this book, you are to become more and more of a Theophilus, that the reason that this is being written for the church, the reason this is being written for you, is so that you might have friendship with God, which is part of what it means to be a member of the church. Um, in verse three, um, Luke tells us that after his suffering, a reference to the crucifixion, that he presented himself to the disciples by many convincing proofs. Again, Luke wants everyone here to be sure. There were convincing proofs that Jesus uh, rose from the dead. Um, and part of Luke's intent here is not just to uh, inform the Romans reading that this really happened, that this really was the continuation of the story that began with God calling Abraham, but also to let those in the church know um, that this is a real story, uh, a real happening in society, and that the gospel they are risking their life for is real because persecution has already started. Um, Luke tells us that Jesus appeared to them over the course of 40 days. And so uh, if I recall, the ascension is 40 days after Easter. Pentecost comes a little bit la uh, later than that. 
And so the question kind of remains, well, what happened in the lag time between Jesus ascending to the Father and uh, the coming of the Spirit? And we're going to hear more about that next week with um, the replacing of Judas uh, and the calling of Matthias to be the 12th apostle. Um, Jesus tells the disciples in verse 4 that they are not to leave Jerusalem. This is very different from Matthew and also from Mark, where Jesus appears to them in Galilee. Um, why uh, does Luke want to make sure this movement starts in Jerusalem? Well, because Jerusalem is the city of David. And so if you are trying to make a case that Christianity is the natural unfolding of the covenant God made with Abraham and the Jews, uh, everything kind of like the Big Bang has to start in Jerusalem and explode out to the ends of the earth. And the story of Acts, the story of the church, is going to be the story of the church leaving Jerusalem, both literally and symbolically with the welcoming in of the Gentiles, but the story of the church leaving Jerusalem and going to the ends of the earth. And, you know, uh, per Mary's question recently, uh, isn't that what we believe? The answer is yes, because this movement went out from Jerusalem and eventually found its way to Austin, Texas, in the form of the Episcopal Church, where you and I were baptized and confirmed into this story, so that it's our story now too. But all of that started with this gathering in Jerusalem where the Spirit descends and people are sent out to be witnesses. And of course, in verse 8 is where we first hear that word witness, which is a really, really important word in Luke Acts. It comes from the Greek word martyr. Martyreia is the Greek. And um, so to be a witness is to be one who is willing to lay down one's life for Jesus. Um, of course, that could include the martyrs like Stephen who literally die for their faith. But part of what Luke will invite us to ponder is what does it mean for you and I to also bear witness to the Lord in and through our life, both with our words and our deeds. And perhaps in a moment, we can have some conversation about that. I think it's really interesting in verse six, the apostles' question. It's kind of ironic. They say, Lord, is this the time when you will restore the kingdom to Israel? This is truly an astounding question that reveals the depth of their misunderstanding in terms of what Jesus came here to do. And of course, if one reads the gospel, one sees their misunderstanding on every page. You know, you think of Peter telling Jesus, do not go to the cross, do not be crucified. And Jesus tells them time and time again, the son of man must be crucified and on the third day be raised. And that's already happened. They've seen the resurrected Jesus. And yet they still think that Jesus is going to build a kingdom somewhat resembling that of King David, an earthly political kingdom with maybe one of them uh, as the chief and staff to, uh, uh, to Jesus himself. And part of what Jesus does here, he doesn't really mess with them and say, you guys still don't get it. He just says, okay, y'all just got to wait for the spirit here. <laughs> and, and, and part of what Luke is doing here is to say that our understanding can only go so far until we have received the Holy Spirit, which the disciples have not yet received. And yet, this is also a very ironic verse, because part of what Luke will be telling 
is the story of the restored Israel. And that restored Israel is not a restoration of the monarch akin to what David and Solomon had, but rather it's going to be the church. It's going to be the new 12 tribes of Israel represented by the 12 apostles who go out into all the world bringing healing and faith and proclamation of the gospel. And in verse 9, you know, uh, Jesus is saying all this, you know, you guys don't get it. You need the Holy Spirit. Uh, and they're listening to him. And all of a sudden, uh, Jesus starts floating away. <laughs> it says he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of sight. And this, of course, is the ascension. Um, this raises the question, what does it mean for Jesus to be lifted up? Is this a physical lifting up to where Jesus's body is no longer present on earth, but rather at the right hand of God? Is it a spiritual lifting up of our hearts? You know, our hearts are to be lifted up in Christ. And of course, the ascension has many, many different meanings, all of which um, I think are relevant. And, and so they, there they are in, in verse 10, you know, sitting around, like just looking up. And this is where the two men in white, presumably angels, interrupt them and they say, you're looking in the wrong direction. Why are you looking up? What you need to be doing is looking out. You know, the Lord has said you're going to receive the Holy Spirit, and then your gaze no longer needs to be up you know, looking at the clouds as if you're waiting for the Lord to return, you've got work to do. And so stop looking up and look out. Look out to the Gentiles. Look out to the suffering. Look out to the poor. Look out at all the need because that's where I'm sending you. And so in verses 1 through 11 of chapter 1 of the book of Acts, um, kind of a question being set up as Jesus leaves the scene and as uh, the disciples themselves become the main characters, uh, is where are we looking? Are we just sitting around looking up to heaven, you know, wondering when the pandemic's going to end, wondering when Jesus is going to come back, wondering when God is going to solve all our problems? Are we looking up? Uh, or have we been reminded that the Holy Spirit has been given to us, and are we going to be courageous enough to be witnesses and to look out? And so to look up or to look out, uh, that is the question. Okay, I'm going to stop there, and I'm happy to share the screen again so you can see the text, but that's enough of me, and I want to see kind of what y'all are thinking. Go for it, Mary. Okay, so I'm just following in what you're saying. Then I look at this Luke 1-4 that you provided as being in the background so that you may know the truth concerning the things about which you have been instructed. Isn't that not background that's helping us to know that that's what we need in order to be witnesses? In order to look out, we have to understand the truth. Sort of like what you just said, we need to be fluent and comfortable in it in order to really share it. Is that where this goes? Absolutely. And, and you, you know, I mean, I, I think we could have some really interesting conversations uh, of uh, what's the relationship between faith and assurance faith and certainty, doubt and assurance, you know, I mean, there's kind of this spectrum of what faith is and uh, where our beliefs are at any given time in our life. You know, sometimes we're really certain and on fire. Sometimes, you know, it's all we can do to hang on. But if you're to ask Luke, you know, what does he want for the church? Uh, he's like, look, these are many convincing proofs. Uh, I want you to have assurance, you know, and, and, 
I think that what Luke understands is that to truly look out, to be the church, uh, to be Jesus's witness, um, it's hard. And you're not going to last very long unless you really believe in that which you're bearing witness to. And so he really does want them to have assurance. And, and he assumes that we need that in order to be faithful in the long run. What else do you I all see? I made it through uh, growing up in the Episcopal Church into my adult life without ever um, having any teachings, so therefore no real knowledge of the Holy Spirit. I mean, we said Father, Son, and Holy Ghost back then, but but the concentration in my church experience was on the father and the son and it was it was kind of a surprise to me to discover this third person of the trinity and the power that person of the trinity uh brought and so you know it's it's um maybe i just missed it but i swear there wasn't much mention of this third person of the Trinity back when I was um, growing up in the Episcopal Church. I don't know if anyone else had the same experience. Maybe other people had earlier teachings about the Holy Spirit, but uh, it was our Catholic friends in Virginia who introduced us to a course the Catholic Church had put together called Life in the Spirit, and it was like wow, where did this come from? Where has this been all my life, you know? Yeah, does anyone want to piggyback on those thoughts and say a word about the spirit, Diana, see you waving? Okay. Uh, I grew up in the Presbyterian Church, and we had the Trinity, but you never really talked much about the Holy Spirit or the Holy Ghost, as we called it back then. Uh you know, again, like Jackie, the emphasis was on uh, God and Jesus. And it hasn't been until, you know, my more adult life and several Bible studies that I'm at this time, I feel still learning a lot about the Holy Spirit and, and the power that the Holy Spirit does have in me. And, and it's important to to talk to the Holy Spirit, to pray to the Holy Spirit, to ask it, the Holy Spirit to be in me and guiding me. And that's something that's actually rather new in all my Christian training and education. Thank you for that, Diane. Uh, you know, I'd love to hear from y'all because this is, you know, the Holy Spirit is going to play such a big role in Acts of the Apostles. Um, the Holy Spirit, I mean, I would say there's three main characters in Acts, Peter, Paul, Mary, no, Peter, Paul, <laughs> and the Holy Spirit. Um, and we're almost confronted with, who is this? Yeah. What, what, what on our, who, who's this Holy Spirit, you know? And, and I can relate to all this. And I think, you know, so naturally we have the Father, we all have an experience. I mean, like no matter what our story is, we, we have an understanding of father, right? We have a, we're able to project something onto God, the father based on our experience of earthly father, whether that's good or bad, whether it's natural or we have some work to do, 
but like no one has a hard time with the idea of father and in and, and a similar way, you know, Jesus, I mean, although there's moments where, you know, he's frighteningly bold and like, oh my gosh, like the Lord is, you know, throwing the t- tables over in the temple for the most part, like we can relate to his deep compassion, his love. He's so attractive. This man who kisses the lepers will also kiss us and our uncleanness. He calls us friends and how many of us just want a best friend. I mean, he tells us he intercedes for us. So we can kind of relate to that. But then we have the spirit who is part of the Godhead, who is wild, who manifests as tongues of fire. And, you know, I don't have a neat and tidy answer for you because like the very idea of the spirit is there is no neat and tidy answer. But I will say that, you know, as we think about what does it mean to give up control, to give up our own plans, to give up our own way of doing things, that only makes sense if this different force then comes to rush in and to animate our life, right? Uh, It only makes sense for us to step out of the driver's seat if someone else is going to drive or at least, you know, have a say. And I think that's where the spirit comes in. And, and it's something that we have to, to wrestle with, both at the individual level and also the collective. Gail? Well, I'm like Jackie. There wasn't as much emphasis in study. Of course, <clears throat> since Jackie and I were young in the Episcopal Church, at least for me, Bible study has really evolved in the way things are taught and what we really look at. And there, she's right, I think. I mean, other than the, the blessing and uh, uh, doxology, we, there wasn't much emphasis about the Holy Spirit. And I, you've made me start to think, I don't know when I became so aware and thinking about it. Mary, it could have been an EFM, is when I really think the Holy Spirit became something alive in my life, life. And I see the Holy Spirit as God working in others and in us, it's God's power. Um, and for me, the Holy Spirit is comforter. But I remember uh, the Vini Creator uh, from Holy Spirit, our souls inspire and enlighten with celestial fire. I remember hearing that when I was pretty young and not really understanding it, but, you know, thinking about it. I, I don't know. But now, I mean, I, you can't pick and choose and say, oh, this is my favorite part of the Trinity, but I do find a lot of comfort <laughs> and strength with the Holy Spirit. Yeah. Mary? So in on that, Gail, I think in EFM, I do remember it was the first time for me really starting to not just look and know about, but to know in relationship the pieces of the Trinity, the pieces of the Godhead. And one of the things that I've often thought is, that it is um, one God in three persons. And depending on who I am and you are, it's easier perhaps to find God or find your way to God through one of those beings. For example, if you had a horrible relationship with a father, I think it's, I, it's, it's hard to imagine how you can come and even grasp a loving father. And if Jesus is too remote or he's the son of God, so I can't be, then maybe that wildness you talked about, John, for the spirit, that might be the way in. But I do think, I know personally too, growing up in the church, I, I knew God the Father. My prayers are more to God the Father. Uh, it's taken, not time, but I've, I've grown to love and appreciate my relationship with Jesus and with the spirit as well. So yeah, now I'm to where it's like, yeah, they're all there. But I do remember just really some huge ahas as 
we came to know this. And it came from being in safe spaces like this, I think, to talk and share about it. And so I appreciate that. Yeah. Yes. Michael Donegan. So I, uh, uh, I really, I really, well, when you say, I, I, I love those comments, when you say it's a church you want to go to, remember, you got to sell all your possessions, give the money to me, and I'll divide it up. If you want, uh, you want to, if you, if you want to go first, I'll, you know, and anyone who holds back uh, the sale from the price of the land falls uh, dead on the spot. We'll, we'll get to those readings a little bit later. So uh, there's there's some good and some bad, I think, you know, in terms of what's happening in this early movement. But I appreciate those comments. Um, so let me ask you this. We're going to talk about the Holy Spirit. Um, and, you know, the point of today's meeting is really just to kind of give us an intro and to, to look at the opening passage. Um, but we have this charge. Uh, this charge that comes from Jesus, it starts in the Gospel of Luke, but it's picked back up in Acts, that you're going to be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. Um, and that, you know, in a sense, you are Theophilus, you are God's friend, right? I mean, this, this is very intentional, that even though there was, historically speaking, a man named Theophilus, it was a common name, that Luke is a really crafty, skilled, intentional writer, and he wants you whoever you are, man, woman, Gentile, Jew, um, Roman, you know, whatever, to see yourself as a friend of God um, because of your faith in Jesus and for that friendship to lead to a desire not to look up but to look out and to be a witness to Jesus. And so what does that mean to you today? I mean, I know it's a little tricky right now when you know, uh, we're not allowed to actually be near people because of a pandemic, but, you know, assuming that this thing kind of smooths over at some point, or even now in a pandemic, what does it mean for you personally to, to be a witness to the gospel? Jackie? I, I used to tell Michael when we were, uh, you know, in this retreat of the month club and learning all this new stuff, and uh, that I was afraid of being baptized by the Holy Spirit because I was sure I would be sent to Afghanistan as a witness. I don't know why this seemed like the most terrible fate that could befall me. And this was before we were even at war in Afghanistan. But that was the metaphor for me of being sent somewhere I didn't want to go and asked to do things I didn't want to do. And it took me a while to realize especially as a teacher, how much I could be a witness to people in the classroom. And, you know, you don't always, well, you seldom get feedback from the impact you have on people's lives, but I've gotten enough from former students to remind me that you can witness in your backyard. You can witness wherever you are. And fortunately, I was never asked to go to Afghanistan. So that was um, both a huge relief and, you know, and, and uh, I felt a renewed sense of purpose to be the kind of role model I wanted middle school students to aspire to because they are not at their best in middle school. 
I appreciate that comment um, because one of the most common on a good day, I'll say misunderstanding on a bad day, I'll say excuse uh, about being a witness is that, uh, that we can't do that, that we, we don't have that, that that's for someone else that I have to change my job. I have to go to Afghanistan. I have to be ordained. I have to sell my house and my possessions. I have to do X, Y, or Z. And I love how the catechism of the Episcopal Church puts it, how the mission of the church is to, uh, to, represent, Christ, to, you know, to, to represent Christ uh, and to bear witness to him wherever we may be, um, wherever we may be. Um, you know, so whether you're a stay-at-home mom, whether you're uh, an attorney, whether you uh, work for Austin ISD, whether you're homeless, you know, everyone has a vocation. Everyone has to be somewhere. And wherever you are, uh, to represent Christ. And I love that, represent, represent, to present him with our words, but also with our life, wherever we may be. And that doesn't mean that God doesn't call people to vocational changes. I mean, that, you know, that happens all the time, but that's not a prerequisite to being a witness. And I really appreciate that comment. Uh, no one has to be shipped off to Afghanistan in order to fulfill this command. Anyone else? What, what does it mean to you to be a witness? I, I appreciate that. That's a, um, a great, a great comment and a good illustration. And, you know, one of the things that I hope you do in this study is just keep your eyes open uh, to how you can be a witness. And, and really, you know, when I say be a witness, I don't mean get a five point plan of how to witness, but you know, you, you might read, if, if it sounds too kind of out there, if I don't know how to do that, how about just be a Christian presence? You know, if, if being a witness sounds too like, I don't know how to do that, uh, how to be a Christian presence, you know, uh, all of you know people in your life who get bad news, who are hurting, who need help, who could use a, a friendly phone call or a, a kind letter. I mean, if we keep our eyes open, there are so many opportunities to bring love into this world uh, in very small ways. You know, there's that great Mother Teresa quote of you can't do great things. No one can do great things. You can only do small things with great love, with the idea being that the small things add up, especially over a lifetime, over a week, over a day, you know? So what small thing of great love can you do this week? Um, I think that's a good question that uh, this chapter puts before us. Gail? I like that, John, because sometimes I get bearing witness and evangelizing mm -hmm. crossed over, and they aren't the same at all. Um, I, I mean, to evangelize, you need to be able to bear witness, but it, it, during this time, most of my contacts, um, most of them, are with fellow St. Michael parishioners with all the yeah. different Zoom meetings. There are some other things, but then they still tend to be Christians and theologians and the different churches and seminaries. But um, yeah, thanks for the reminder because sometimes I think that it means a whole lot more, like you know, standing on the street corner and reading. From yeah, the 
Yeah, I mean, and of course, you know, the concept of witness, evangelist, apologist, missionary, these are all different concepts, and they, they're, they're similar. They live in the same family. They bleed into each other, but they're just not the same, right? Not everyone's called to be a missionary. Um, not everyone has to be a defender of the faith, you know, skilled in refuting the heretics. Uh, some, some people need to know how to articulate our faith well, uh, but that's not everybody, but everyone can, can represent Christ, right? Okay, one last question, uh, because this is our last time with Jesus in Acts. He's gone. He's up in heaven, right? We're, we're stuck with Peter, and we're stuck with Paul and with the Holy Spirit. It says he was lifted up and taken into heaven. This is the doctrine of the ascension. Where did he go? I do want you to elaborate just a little bit. Who will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven? I mean, it doesn't say they were stunned. They were just gazing. I mean, I'd be awestruck. I'd be on my knees. I mean, somebody just lifted up into the cloud, which sometimes I think is a metaphor for the vine, or the cloud came down and covered God on the mountain. Um, anyway, so what does that really mean? You said looking out and not up. I'd, I'd be looking up. Well, they were. You know, yeah. they were looking up, and the two men in white robes said, uh, stop looking up. His He's gone, yeah. The friends from the tomb. Yeah, yeah, presumably, yeah. But so he, you know, it says that he was lifted up and, you know, went above the clouds. Mary? Is this maybe the beginning or some of it of omniscience and omnipresence? And, and the fact is you look out because you're looking to heaven. Well, heaven isn't just in the sky. Heaven is the kingdom and is the kingdom out and around us. Yeah. So it's, it's interesting. We have, you know, it's kind of a trick question, right? Because what I'm asking us to think about is the mystery of the ascension and um, where Jesus the Christ is. You know, in the creed, we say that he's at the right hand of God, right? And so uh, uh, this is the time when Jesus ascends to the right hand of God. But uh, where is God? Well, God is omnipresent. You know, God is uh, God is. Uh, infinite. God is everywhere. Uh, God is filling the space where you are right now. And so if Jesus is at the right hand of everywhere, uh, then then the right hand of God is also everywhere. Interestingly enough, um, a lot of people think, uh, just kind of a little historical tidbit of knowledge, that there was a great division over Martin Luther and John Calvin uh, when the Reformation was beginning over the Ascension, because um, Martin Luther wanted to emphasize the, uh, the one nature of Christ. And because God, the Father, was everywhere, because God was omnipresent, the right hand of God must be also omnipresent, uh, meaning that the right hand of God was everywhere. John Calvin said no, that um, he really focused on uh, the two natures. And he said that the divine nature of Christ is everywhere, but that the human nature of the risen Christ is located uh, in one place because that's what it means uh, to have a human body, even a resurrected human body. So there was a great fight over that. But uh, however we envision the ascension, I think what matters, we're never going to figure it out rationally. I think what matters for us to take forward in our study of Acts are really um, two things. Um, uh, number one is that 
part of what it means for Jesus to be at the right hand of God is that Jesus intercedes for us. Um, that, um, that Jesus is our great high priest. Um, the one who makes all of our offerings acceptable to God. The one who takes all of our sins and presents them as if they were beautiful aspects of our character, right? And, and the other uh, is a more functional thing of, uh, he's gone. It's your work to do now. And of course, that's a dangerous point to make because he's not really gone. Um, but part of what Luke is doing in terms of the narrative is saying, uh, he's not the main character of the story anymore. Uh, he is, but he's going to be playing the role through you. Like, uh, you're going to be the outward manifestation of the work of Christ moving forward. And that's really Luke's concern to say, um, this story, which is about Jesus, uh, is going to have different characters now. Uh, people like Peter, people like Paul, who are very ordinary, um, uh, very sinful, very stubborn, but they're still going to be the main characters who uh, lead this restored Israel going forward. And if they can do it, you know, if, if God can use them, then God can use Rhoda and Mary and Barbara and Gail and Chris and Annie and Bunny and Michael and Jackie and Diane and Britt and Kay. You know, that's, that's the understanding. And if I forgot anyone on that list, that wasn't intentional. <laughs> so uh, that's what I got. Uh, and I'm looking forward to this study with y'all.